Good to see everybody today, and I uh, hope you had a, had a Merry Christmas, and uh, it's the last Sunday of the year, so I'm, I'm glad to fill in today, and we're going to be in Philippians 3 most of our time, and if today is your first time to ever hear a sermon, and you read uh, that very first word that pops out is the word finally, and you're thinking, finally, that's what you say at the end, this is great, this sermon's going to be over now, we're not even beginning, this is over, we're done, we can go home. And if you have heard sermons before, you're like, no, 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 there's a lot more to come after this. And Paul, of course, is going to write two more chapters. He's going to write Philippians 3 and then Philippians 4. And everybody who's ever heard a preacher say finally knows, finally ain't finally. Finally is catch what's coming next after I say finally because it's important. And so Paul's going to draw attention to, um, if you look in Philippians 3.1, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. And so Paul's going to unpack for us today, what does it look like to rejoice in the Lord? And what does it look like to know the Lord? And so Paul goes on to say, finally, brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. So what's going on there? Why is he saying to write the same things to you? Well, what you've got to know is Paul is in prison, okay? And this is A.D. 62, maybe A.D. 64, so about 30 years or so after Jesus has died and, and risen from the dead. And Paul is in prison for his faith, and he's written two other books. He's written Galatians, and he's written uh, the book to the two, uh, there are probably four, but we have two of them, to the Corinthians. Okay, so he's, and now he's writing to the Philippians. And so he's saying, the same things I told the church in Galatia, and the same things I told the church in Corinth, it's no problem for me to now write those things to you. Actually, it's safe for you. And if you uh, were to read the book of Galatians, we won't do that right now, but if you were to read the book of Galatians, you would see what Paul takes on there is uh, those who would come and say, yes, you have to have Jesus, but you also need to really get Jesus, you need to have Judaism. Okay, so we would categorize that as religion, okay, or morality, all right, and, and having this uh, specific set of beliefs, okay, and then he writes to the church in Corinth, and if you've never read First or Second Corinthians, it's kind of like keeping up with the Kardashians, okay, I mean, every single week, there's something crazy and, and just ridiculous, I mean, it, it I'll spare you because there's children in the room, but if you have free time today, go read Corinthians. And what you'll see is it's, it's the opposite of the problem in Corinth. It's, it's not religion, it's more spirituality. And when you hear someone say, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual, what that typically means is I kind of do things the way I want to get peace and purpose in life. And that plays out in Corinth, okay? And so, uh, lo and behold, if you, uh, if Paul were to unpack all of that, that's what he would tell us. But it, there's really nothing new under the sun, is there? Because that's, that's kind of what we've got today. You've got people who say, I'm religious, right? I, I adhere to a specific group. I adhere to a specific set of beliefs. We have certain morals and beliefs and practices, and we hold tight to our group. And then you, you'll have uh, kind of the rejection of that now, especially in our day, where you'll have people say that very same thing. I'm not religious, I'm spiritual. Right? And what do they mean by that? It's, I don't identify with a specific organized religion. I basically find and create and craft my own way for whatever brings me peace and purpose. And Paul is going to look at these, these approaches to life, and he's going to say, 
He's going to give us three real quick verbs. Look at it in Philippians chapter 3, verse 2. He says, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for the circumcision. So he repeats three verbs, look out, look out, look out. It's blepo, blepo, blepo in the Greek, okay? It's look out, look out, look out. They're real, real fast, real meant to get your attention. And then he follows it with three nouns. Now, you can't get this in the English, but in the Greek, it's really a, a beautiful sentence. Each noun begins with a k sound, okay? So it's look out, k, look out, k, look out, k. So in my attempt to try to get us to feel this in the English, I put together my own little uh, look out. So it's look out the curs, look out the criminals, look out the cutters. Okay, and you're like, what is a cur? It's, it's a dog. Okay, I looked, I, I had to Google it just to try to make this thing work for us here. Okay, but it's, it's short, quick statements that Paul is really trying to get their attention. Look out, look out, look out. Now, there's two ways that we use the word look out in the English language. One of which is to beware, the other is understanding. Okay, so the first one in the sense of beware, is, is this idea of staying away from. So I live in Pecan Grove, and uh, that means uh, I feel the pressure from my other neighbors to put up Christmas lights every year, okay? Um, yesterday, I'm driving home, and we're a couple days after Christmas now, and I'm like, I'm not plugging in my lights. I'm done. Christmas is over. Bah humbug. And cars just come by real slow, and, and, and I see these faces, and they're like, you didn't turn on your lights. And I felt the pressure, so I go plug in my lights. All right, that's fine, okay? You know, I don't know why I'm telling you that. I'm getting away from the point here. But last year, last year I hang up all my lights, and I, I have this tree in the middle of my yard, and it, it goes, it has the, the um, it kind of splits into two. And so last year, uh, Kelly was at work, and I had the boys outside. I had my, I guess he was, he was five at that time, and my one-and-a-half-year-old, and had a little playpen for, for Caleb, my one-and-a-half-year-old, to be in. And I'm wrapping the lights and, um, and I reach my arm around, and I feel this thing prick me, and I was like, ah, it's a splinter. And I look over, and all of a sudden, I had like a hickey on my forearm. And I was like, what is that? And I looked over, and in three seconds, I felt the worst pain I had ever felt in my life. My, my life. In my, in my life. <laughs> so, it was a Texas asp. All right, I'm from Louisiana. You guys have your own, we have crocodiles and alligators. You have asp. Okay, and you're like, what's an asp? Well, let's go Google it like a cur. It's a little fluffy thing, and you're like, oh, that's really cute until you touch it. I immediately grabbed my son and said, son, get inside, and I pick up my one-and-a-half-year-old, and I'm running, and I'm like, oh, this is so much pain. And I call my daughter who's upstairs, and I'm like, watch Caleb. I hope he survives. And I go lay in the bed. I grab some ice and just hold onto my forearm, and for the next hour and a half, I'm just sitting there. I didn't cry. Well, maybe. But I just, I just put as much pressure as I, as I could. Guess what I didn't do this year? I didn't put lights on that tree. No lights on that tree. We had them on our bushes. We had them everywhere else, but none right there. Why? Because I looked out. I, I was beware. I stayed away from it. Okay? That's in one sense. Don't read that sense of look out here. Paul is not saying beware, stay away from these people. What Paul rather is saying is look out like if you're on a mountain and you look out and you get a view of the glimpse of the landscape and you get an understanding of where you are and where the rest of the world is. So um, I've been to, been to Georgia. Anybody here from Georgia? All right. There, no? No, oh, you've been to Georgia. Yeah, yeah. So um, about 20, 20 miles outside of Chattanooga in Georgia is Lookout Mountain. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful place. You can go to the far edge of Lookout Mountain and you can see seven states. 
Georgia, South Carolina, North Carolina, Virginia, Kentucky, uh, Alabama, and Tennessee. You can see all of them from right there. And you just get this sense of where you are, where everyone else is, and you get a greater understanding of that area. And I think that's what Paul is saying here, is understand, understand the dogs, which in that day, in Paul's, where he grew up, that would have meant the pagans, okay? Those who are outsiders. You keep your dog, you know, we keep our dogs inside. They're cute. We send little pictures of them. Keep them outside. Dogs were outsiders at that point, okay? And then he says, look out for the evildoers. And then he says, look out for the circumcision. That's the insiders. That's the religious. So I, what I take that to mean is that Paul is saying, not be on your guard, not beware, but understand the religious, the irreligious, and everywhere in between. Okay? I think that's what Paul is getting at here. And then you can see what he's going to say at the end of verse 3. He gives us another repetition of, uh, of uh, a phrase that's repeated three times. Look at the end of verse 3. Okay? Well, I'll just read all of verse 3. For we are the real circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, and now here we go, and put no confidence in the flesh. There it is the first time. Though I myself have reason for, what? Confidence in the flesh. There's the second time. Also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. So Paul has said, look out for, understand the religious. Why? Because they have confidence in the flesh. Understand the irreligious. Why? Because they have confidence in the flesh. Understand anyone who might fall in between there. Why? Confidence in the flesh. You may wonder what in the world does in the flesh mean. And I, I think for, for me, the easiest way to understand it is to substitute it with your highest and best. Okay? So let's say you're selling your house. And everyone knows in this market, you sell your house, price it right, the market just pfft, gone, quick, right? You sell your house, you put it for sale sign, that afternoon you get three offers in. You get three offers. The first one comes in, and you say, this is great. The second one, wow, this is awesome. Third one, whoa, what do we do with this? And you say, okay, well, we're going to call for our, or call for the buyers to give their what? Highest and best. So offer number one comes in, and the buyers say, you know what, we're going to give you $5,000 over what you're asking for the house, and we're going to close in three weeks. And you're like, oh, that's awesome. Buyer number two comes in, they say, we're going to give you $5,000 less, but we're going to close in 10 days, no contingencies. Ooh, that's nice. We don't have any problems. Buyer number three comes in and says, well, I'll give you $1,000 more than what you want. But here's a nice little picture of my family, and here's a nice little story. And they start tugging at your emotions, right? What are they doing? What are they doing? They're offering their highest and best. And I'll tell you this, each person believes what? They're going to win. I, I've, I've given them 5000 more than what they're asking. Oh, yeah? I'm giving them cash, and cash is what? King, Right? I have a picture of my little fluffy and my two-year-old, and here's a thousand extra dollars. We'll take care of your house just as much as you have. Don't you love us? <laughs> right? Everyone has put forward their highest and best, and they all feel confident. They all feel confident. And Paul is saying this, understand 
that the irreligious understand that the religious and understand that everyone in between is confident that they have what it takes to gain the house. Everyone comes to the table thinking they have the best and the highest and they will win. See that little phrase in verse 4 where Paul says, if anyone else religious, irreligious, we'll just insert that with anyone else, religious, irreligious, anyone in between thinks he has confidence in the flesh, if anyone thinks they have highest and best, what's that little phrase right at the end of verse 4? I have more. You ever try to one-up someone? Okay, no, you haven't. Okay, but have you, have you ever had someone try to one-up you? <laughs> yes, yes, of course, of course, right? What is the refrain that they always say? Oh, that's, that's a cool boat, man, but look, have you seen? But I, I got the, like, the newest, right? I have more. And any parent who has an infant and wants to teach them to eat understands sign language for more, right? More, more. More, and that's, that's, what, that's what we come to the table with, is look, I have more, more. I'm better with status. I'm better with power. I'm better, and, and look, everyone hates the guy who thinks he's trying to one-up you, but we all do it. I have more, all right? I'm more moral. I would never say that. I come from a better background. I have more knowledge. More, more, more. And what do you actually look like? An infant crying for applesauce, right? It's silly. But we don't think that because we think we come to the table with what? The highest and best. We have confidence in our flesh. The truth is we are at our worst when we are at our best. I'll say that again. We are actually at our worst when we are at our best. Because when I'm at my best, my confidence is usually in myself and my practices and my rhythm of like life are for my sake so my wife started a new role at her uh her job um which means in the living room on a computer and like everyone else and uh and i have the flexibility with my work so i'm taking care of the kids while she's doing this new role and i start to do the dishes and uh do the laundry and watch the kids, and vacuum, and uh, everything else to try to keep our house, you know, not from looking like a war zone since we're home all day long with three kids, right? And uh, Kelly, we just got two dogs. Kelly comes in, two little miniature schnauzers, cute dogs, awesome, but they poop sometimes inside, right? So Kelly comes in, she's like, hey, why don't you watch these dogs? Now, helped us with that. I'll, I'll just give a shout out to that. Not okay, but uh, when we don't do what we're supposed to and keep an eye on them, there's an accident somewhere. And Kelly's like, "Hey, um, keep an eye out on Alex. That's our that's our our schnauzer." Okay, so if your name is Alex, I'm sorry. Um, and uh, I don't know about it, but after doing all the dishes and tidying up and doing the laundry and vacuuming and sweeping and mopping and keep trying to keep the house tidy, she walks in. She's like, "Hey, the dog pooped on the floor." And I'm like, yeah, but what about the, the sweeping and the mopping and the dishes? I've done all these things, and the one thing you can come in here and do is say the dog pooped on the floor. And I get whoosh, defensive. She didn't say, 
hey, idiot, why didn't you keep an eye on the dog? She just said, the dog pooped on the floor. And I immediately put my guard up and I'm defensive because I did all these other things. I was confident in my highest and my best. Look at all this stuff I did. And you know what the reality was? I didn't do those for her sake. I did them for my sake. I did them for my sake. Because if I did them for her sake, I'd be like, oh yeah, no problem at all. Let me just pick this thing up and throw it out. Right? And Paul says, understand that religion irreligion and everywhere in between might have the appearance of looking like you're going to do it for the sake of others but really it's a I have more for my sake for my sake I did those things out of confiding in myself and not for the sake of honoring my wife so when she says something that cuts against my confidence in how awesome of a husband I am i got to defend my highest and best because I'm rejoicing in myself. My confidence was in myself. Religion, irreligion, and everything else in between can't take such a statement as I am truly at my worst when I'm at my best because it strips all the confidence away from myself. Who can stand such a statement? It cuts against my self-esteem, and it cuts against my mental health, and it cuts against the way that I project myself to the world. It stops me from knowing myself. Well, if it feels uncomfortable, then you'll understand Paul's next statement will be very difficult in his original context. Philippi was a financial powerhouse. It was a very wealthy place. Uh, when you were a Roman general and you retired, you went to go live in Philippi. Philippi had all the money. I mean, it was super, super wealthy, the place to be. Very self-sustaining, very highest and best kind of place. And look what Paul says in Philippians 3, 7. Look what he says. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss. That's language from the culture there. Gain and loss. Profit and loss. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss. And Paul doesn't say, begin to follow Jesus and you'll get peace, hope, joy, and love. He says, I count peace, joy, hope, and love as loss compared to knowing Christ Jesus. And so often what we want to do is say, hey, come follow Jesus and you'll get peace as though peace is the goal. Come follow Jesus and you'll get hope as though hope is the goal. And Paul says, I count all of those as loss. He's even going to say, I count them as rubbish. Who sits around and thinks about their dog's rubbish? No one. I count them all as rubbish. And so you take a scale and you put all of your moral superiority and you put all of your family heritage and all of your religiosity and all of your wealth and it starts to weigh down the scale. And Paul says, you take Christ and Christ alone and stick him on the other scale and it flips. And it doesn't just flip a little bit, it flips a lot because Christ surpasses all of those things. I count these as loss and this as gain, to know Christ. And so let me ask you, is Christ appealing to you because of who he is in and of himself? 
Or do you find Christ appealing to you because of what he can give you? Do you love Christ or do you love the favor of Christ? Do you love Christ or do you simply love the justice of Christ? Do you love Christ or do you love the truth of Christ? Do you love Christ or do you love the beauty of Christ? Do you love Christ or do you love the forgiveness of Christ? Do you love Christ or do you love the hope of Christ? Is it Christ and Christ alone, or does the benefits that come with Christ that bring you to here today? Is it him by himself? And Paul says, whatever gain I have, I counted. Okay, do you see that? Look in verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted, past tense. Okay, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Christ saved Paul maybe two or three years after Jesus raised from the dead, okay? Paul's going to go kill Christians. He's Osama bin Laden at this time, if you want to think of a a terrorist, okay? He's going to go murder Christians, and Christ shows up to him and says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And knocks him off the ground and rescues him and saves him at that point. And Paul says, I counted. And then look what he says in the next verse. Indeed, I count, A.D. 34, I counted it all as loss. Paul, was it worth it? 30 30 years later, I count to this day. 30 years of the Lord sustaining me by showing me how worthy he is to count everything as loss and him as gain. Is he worth it? You better believe it. You better better believe it. Psalm 73, 25 says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. What does it say? Whom or what? Whom? Many of us would be fine to say, what do I have in heaven besides pearly gates and golden streets and my Aunt Gertrude, right? The psalmist with Paul says, Whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth. So between heaven and earth and anything in between, there's nothing I desire besides your peace. No, besides what? You, oh God, for what you've done and who you are in Christ. So for the Christian, we are always gaining Christ always gaining Christ because Christ is inexhaustible. Christ, look, you can't plumb the depths of the ocean, right? I mean, we, you, you can't understand the far reaches of the galaxy. We want to send somebody to Mars in about 15 years, right? Maybe less than that, just so we can understand. And you think we're going to understand all that? We haven't even understand, understood all the earth And how do you think you're going to fully understand the one who created the depths of the ocean? Right? There's always more to gain of Christ. There's always more to gain and to know of Christ. And another way to say, to get your arms around, what does it mean to gain Christ? If you look in chapter 3, verse 9, look what he says. In order that, that I may gain Christ and be found in him. 
So another way to say to gain Christ is I want to be found in him, not just found as having met him once or met him at a Bible study or that I may know a couple of facts about him, but that I may be found in him. And what does that mean? Well, look at the rest of verse 9. Not having a righteousness of my own, not having my highest and best comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, that I might have His highest and best, Him and only Him. So Philippians 3.12, we'll get a little help from this. Paul says, Christ has made me His own. Not that I have already obtained this, or I am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Remember, Paul, what was Paul doing when, when Christ made him his own? He was going to go kill Christians, right? Let me tell you right now, wherever you are in your life right now, it's not as bad as that. And wherever you are right now that you think God can't meet you, and if he can meet Paul, Saul on his way to go murder someone, surely he can meet you there with your anxiety. Surely he can meet you there with your rocky marriage. Surely he can meet you there in your depression. Surely he can meet you there in your unbelief. Surely he can meet you there in your struggles. If, 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 God can, if Paul can say, he made me his own. He reached out and he grabbed me. He made me his own own, then surely where you are this morning, Christ can make you his own because your sin is not greater than he is. Count it as loss and Christ as gain. Paul says in Philippians 3.1, my brothers, so I imagine the people to whom he's speaking has a familiar situation like this. And I would hope that today, maybe someone could stand up and say, yes, amen. What that man on this stage is saying has happened in my life. And I would imagine that when Paul wrote this, there were people who stood up and said, yes, he's worth it. He's gain. I count all of it as loss. And if you ever go back and you read in Acts 16, we see the story of how this church in Philippi started, okay? So Paul and Silas, they were uh, in Philippi, and they're going to go pray, and they meet a woman named Lydia, okay? She was a very well-to-do business executive. The Bible says that she sold um, uh, textiles of purple. So, so, so back then, like to be able to make purple clothing, meant you were an LSU fan. No, no. So to, to make purple clothing meant you had the resources and you were rich, right? So she was successful, and the Bible says the Lord opened Lydia's eyes to hear what Paul and Silas were saying and to believe and to follow Jesus. And she was baptized, she and her household. So there's a woman who had all the success. A, a woman, y'all, a woman in that day had all the success that an entrepreneur would want. And she says, loss, Christ, gain. And Paul and Silas begin to make their way through town. And there's a little slave girl who comes running up behind them. 
And she, said, she starts yelling, these two men that you hear right now, they are prophets of the Most High God. Listen to them. And it's like, hey, wouldn't you want somebody to, to follow you around as you're saying that? But she does it so much, Paul gets ticked. And he turns around, and the, the girl had, had a demon. She had a demon. And Paul says, out of her, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the girl gets saved. <laughs> Well, guess what happens? The people who owned her, because she could t- kind of tell the future, she was a fortune teller, the people who owned her made a lot of money off of her. And they got ticked. They got really mad. So they throw Paul and Silas into jail. They throw them into jail. And the Bible says at midnight, Paul and Silas are sitting there singing. If I were in jail, I would not be singing. And they're singing because Christ is gain over their comfort. And they're singing, and all of a sudden an earthquake happens. And there's a jailer who's in charge. He's a very hardworking man to be able to get to this spot, to have this kind of responsibility with these kinds of people. And their shackles come loose. And the guy sees, uh, he sees that this has happened, and he thinks, well, my life's over. I'm done. Everything that I had as gain is now lost. I've lost it all. It's all gone. So he's about to kill himself. And Paul and Silas say, no, 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 we're here. We're still here in prison. I'm going to tell you right now, if I was in prison and an earthquake happened and my shackles, I'm gone, right? I'm running a 4440. I've never done that in my life, but I'm out of there, man. I'm gone. And Paul and Silas are still there. Why? And you got to know that guy is thinking, why are you still here? So then they share the good news of Jesus with this guy. And he's like, this is amazing. Come and tell my family. So they go and tell their family. And their family's like, wait, you had the opportunity to, to, get, to save your own skin? And you stuck around? Why? Well, let me tell you about Jesus. And then Paul goes on to tell them, here's who gave up his own life for his enemies. And we got to demonstrate that for this man. And then the chapter ends. You know what Paul and Silas do? They don't leave. They go back to jail. And the next day... <laughs> The next day, they call for him. I'm like, dude, what in the world? Why? Because Christ is gain, and whatever it is, he literally says, is loss. And I can imagine these three people, Lydia, this little uh, girl who was a slave, and this uh, hardworking jailer would all stand up and say, yes, I don't just know this in theory. I know this in life. I know this to be true in reality. Jesus is better than being a successful entrepreneur. He's better than magic. And he's better than hard work ethic. So I ask you today, do you value Christ? Is he your greatest treasure? Do you look out and see that everything else that you might have is rubbish compared to knowing him? What this means as living as a Christian or beginning to follow Christ is that knowing him is the aim of all endeavors. Are you a plumber today? Your aim is to know Christ in fixing toilets and sinks. Are you a business executive? Your aim is to know Christ in running your company. Are you a school teacher? Your business is to know Christ while teaching. Are you a stay-at-home mom? Your endeavor is to know 
Christ while staying at home. Are you retired? Your endeavor is not to simply sit back and enjoy life, but to know Christ. Christ is my life. He's my all in all. And he's all together lovely. And without him, everything else is all together loathsome. And this is why Paul is going to say that I may know him, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. And he doesn't stop there. What's he tag on at the end? My Lord. Not just the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. Here's some facts about the Messiah. But knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. When I refer to Kelly Mishral, I don't say Kelly Mishral, that woman who works for CPS. I say, Kelly Mistral, my wife. Why? Because she's not just some woman that I know facts about. She's mine. I know her intimately. I want to know her intimately. I know what she likes. I know what she doesn't like. I know when, what ticks her off. I know what makes her smile. Why? Because I know her intimately. And that's what Paul is saying here. Is it's not just enough to know categories. I mean, I think sometimes we get so excited about Bible study or we get so excited about theology that we turn it into, let me make sure I can memorize these things so that I can win an argument because I want to bring forth my highest and best. See, I can score theological points and I know more. Right? But have you ever considered, let's just take the doctrine of election, for example. Paul says, Christ has made me his own. Have you ever considered when the Apostle Paul talks about election. It's fuel for worship. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, because he chose us in him, right? Every theological truth, everything that we want to learn and to know here does not end on itself. It is so that we may worship by the Spirit of God, glory in Christ, and put no confidence in our highest and best. So let me ask you this morning, finally, I'll close with this, finally. How can you rejoice in the Lord if you don't know Him? And how can you help but rejoice in the Lord if you do know Him? And so would you come to Him today, wherever you are, so that you might see Him as gain? Let's pray. Father, we uh, love you because you first loved us, and we praise you, God, for uh, sending your Son uh, to not simply live a life that we couldn't live and die a death that we should have died, uh, but also to be our ultimate treasure and to steer us away from ourselves, away from religion, away from irreligion, away from everything else in between, so that our confidence might be in Him and that we would know gain in its truest sense. Would you work that in our hearts as a people and together as your church? It's in Jesus' name, amen.